0: Well, good morning, Hope Fellowship, on this, what was a very rainy morning, and now kind of maybe we'll see some sun later today. Hope you're doing well. My name is Jeff Brewer, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I do have just a few announcements. First, as Pastor John said earlier, we have the Galatians Scripture Journals Uh, back in the back. um, Whenever we do a new series through a book of the Bible, what this is is the text of Scripture on one side from the book of Galatians and then an empty page on the other. You can use that to take notes if you'd like as well. There is a book, uh, this is free for everyone, Dane Ortlands, Gentle and Lowly. It's back on the back table as well. Couple of announcements. Again, this is our last Sunday here in this space. And as I've been thinking about it, um, I'm both thankful that we, God has provided this space. It's been, it's worked for us very well. You know, it's been 18 months since we began the pandemic. We've been here about almost exactly a year. And so this has worked well for us, uh, minus being able to do children's ministry and such, but there is a nursery upstairs. We've been thankful, but we're glad to go back to Glenbard East next week. So we're still in conversations with the school. Everything looks like it's a go. Uh, one, uh, One thing to keep in mind, because we're in a school, the school administration has asked us that we all please be masked. So we will be wearing masks during the services there at Glenbard East, and that's per the school's regulations. And we want to be good neighbors and good tenants and uh, do that well. And hopefully that won't be for a long period of time, just as things are ever changing, as you know. Well, there's some other things you'll see on the announcements that will come out later this week. on Our newsletter, Men's and Women's Bible Study, mission groups are starting. If you're a visitor here, we're so glad that you joined us here this morning. We want to rejoice in Christ. We want to delight in him together. And so I would like you to turn now to the book of Galatians. I'm going to read the first nine verses where we'll spend our time this morning. And then I'll pray and we'll spend some time in God's word here. And so Galatians chapter one, starting in verse one. And I'm going to read to verse nine. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, which is always relevant, which is always clear, it's always sufficient, it's always powerful because your spirit is at work when your word is proclaimed. And so, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, David Brooks wrote a column in The Atlantic last October, and he made the point America is having a moral convulsion. He, was a, he cited a political scientist, Samuel Huntington, who demonstrated that about every 60 years, America has gone through a time of both political and moral upheaval. The last one was in the late 1960s, early 1970s sexual revolution, Vietnam War, Watergate. And, and here's what he said happens in these moral convulsions these moments share certain features. People feel disgusted by the state of society. Trusts in institutions plummet. Moral indignation is widespread. Contempt for established power is intense. A highly moralistic generation appears on the scene. It uses new modes of communication to seize control of the national conversation. Groups formerly outside of power rise up and take over the system. These are moments of agitation and excitement. Frenzy and accusation, mobilization and passion. Does that sound familiar? You know, if we've seen anything over the last 18 months, it is that there is a highly moralistic conversation going around, revolving around racism and politics, sexuality, vaccines, wealth, work, and a host of other issues. People have taken side, and each side thinks that they are morally right. There is frenzy, like he said, and accusation aplenty. You know, David Brooks actually said that these last two years, in his column, he said, they're like a hurricane hitting in the midst of an earthquake. That's the best description I think could kind of describe where we are. And this morning, as we begin our series on the book of Galatians, if indeed there is a great moral convulsion... It's important to ask, it's important to answer, it's important to know, how does a book written about 2,000 years ago, a letter by the Apostle Paul, how does that letter help us today? That's the question we need to ask really when we come to scripture is, how does God's word inform and speak to us today? And here's here's how I'd answer that question. How does Galatians help us and why are we coming to Galatians this fall? The book of Galatians it helps us to cling to the right thing as Christians in the midst of great cultural upheaval. Galatians helps us to to remind us we don't look for solutions to our problems where they can't be found. And as we'll see in Galatia they were looking backward to find solutions. In order to fit in with the Jews they were they tried to add the law some of these false teachers to the gospel, and some were being led astray. But Paul he makes the case over and over again here to this letter to the Galatians in this six chapters that it's the gospel plus nothing which will bring life and peace to the believer. The gospel alone, the gospel plus nothing, is what will bring life and peace even if clinging to this undiluted gospel will bring alienation or persecution from society at large, which is certainly what the Galatians were going through. And so what, what Christians need to do today and why we need to come to Galatians is we need to drink ever more deeply at the well of the gospel. And so that's the that's the book of Galatians. It helps us I titled this, it's a a field guide to gospel riches. It helps us identify over and over again different aspects of the gospel, different truths that are true because the good news is true, and how does that affect our lives? And it also points us to how insufficient all of our attempts to aid in our salvation are. And so here this morning, what I want us to do is just look at three points I want to do first a brief overview of the book of Galatians to kind of help orient us to where we are in this letter. Then I want us to look at two aspects of the message that Paul's preaching from the opening verses. The cross and the undistorted gospel. So an overview, the cross and the undistorted gospel from here in these first nine opening verses. So let's begin here first. Let's start with an overview. Now, the book of Galatians is probably the earliest letter that Paul wrote to a church or to a group of churches. It's right after his first missionary journey, about a year or two afterwards. And, And unlike other letters that he wrote to individuals or to specific churches, this is written to a group of churches in a particular region. And so Galatia is a region, not a city. And so Galatia, the region, was very long and narrow. It kind of takes up what is modern-day Turkey in the middle, and it goes from the Black Sea, or it went from the Black Sea down to the Mediterranean Sea. And so as this, this letter to this group of churches, he's writing to this group of churches in order to guard the church against false teachers, even in the year or so since he preached the gospel, false teachers had already started to come in and lead the people astray. They had begun to lead the people astray because they were requiring non-Jewish Christians to follow the law of Moses and obey its Jewish ritual requirements, things like circumcision. And so right here at the beginning of Galatians, you might notice if you've read different letters of Paul in the New Testament, normally he follows a particular pattern. He introduces himself. He talks a little bit about who he is, which he does here. We'll talk more about that as we talk about him next week. And then he usually has some kind of extended thanksgiving for the people he's writing to, maybe a prayer for them, but that's not where he starts here. Look at verse 6. Look at how he starts. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in that grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What Paul's doing here is he's not knocking on the door. He's kicking in the door. And he's just kind of coming right in and he's saying, look, I cannot believe it. What in the world is going on here? It's not been that long and I can't believe you're considering. So they haven't left already for these false teachers. They've actually, they're still considering it. And what he's saying is, I'm astonished. I can't believe you're actually considering following a different gospel. I can't believe you're considering leaving the good news for something that doesn't bring life. And so this astonishment that he starts with in verse six, it's really right at the heart of the letter because Paul is in a relentless pursuit of making sure they understand just what a dangerous predicament they're in, just how dangerous false teaching is. Look, the false teachers, they're treating the good news as if the gospel can be turbocharged. It can be souped up. They can kind of add some of the old law and it's going to actually make the th- this totally better. But in reality, what they're doing is kind of like they're, they're taking the horse of the law and they're tying it to the Ferrari of the gospel. They, they don't go together. One led maybe to the other, horsepower and such, but the law has served its role, Paul's saying. The people of God used to be under the law of Moses, but now they're under the law of Christ which is demonstrated by love. Now, I'm guessing that just even how I've just described that is probably why a lot of people feel daunted by this little letter. It feels complex. And and it probably feels complex because we're so removed from the Jewish culture of the Old Testament that we don't really understand why the false teachers are trying to use this law in this certain way, or even we don't even really understand why is that such a big deal? So some, some people want to kind of do some of these things. Is it really big, that big a deal, Paul? You know, I love how Dane Ortland he summarized the message of the book of Galatians in nine words. He says this, he says, to help the gospel is to hurt the gospel. I love that. So well said. To help the gospel, to try to add to the gospel, is to hurt the gospel. Which means if you try to add anything to the good news of Jesus, whether it's good works, moralism, obedience, something somebody needs to avoid, ceremonies that have to be participated in, anything that we try to add to the gospel through our morality to try to make us more, more um, acceptable to God in our own selves, ultimately those things tear down the gospel. Because it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus' work on the cross plus nothing. Look, and we could say it this way maybe God doesn't need our help for us to be saved. God is, He alone thought of salvation, provided for salvation, and now we get to glory in this salvation that His Son has accomplished on our behalf. And so Paul is going to come back over and over again to this. To help the gospel is to ultimately hurt the gospel. Now, that's kind of a big picture of the book. And we're going to keep coming back to it. We'll talk about the structure of the book next week a little bit. But let's see now what Paul brings immediately to bear, where he starts to think about two things in these first nine verses that we would do well to pay attention to. The cross and what we could say is the undistorted gospel. The cross and the undistorted gospel. So let's look first here at the cross. Now, look with me at verses 3 and 4. This is kind of a typical opening of Paul. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul begins by speaking with the cross, and he's speaking about the cross by using a phrase in the place of the word the cross, And he's saying, he gave himself. And that phrase there, it shows us the willingness of the Savior to go to this cross, this place of execution, to pay for sins. So, Galatians 2.20, just a chapter over. Probably one of the most well-known verses in the whole book. Paul's going to use this phrase again to refer to the crucifixion. Look at what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So Matthew 20, 28, Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not only to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus giving his life means that he willingly died to pay the price for sinner's release. So how are we set free? So later when Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, how does that freedom purchased? It's purchased by the blood of Christ at the cross. Death was required because of sin. The The wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. But we all... All of us were unable to pay the price required to deliver us, and so we're under the curse of sin. We're under the curse of death, and since we couldn't pay, he by grace paid for us with his own blood. So all of this is kind of bound up in this. He gave himself for us. You know, he was our substitute. He was our substitute that he took our place that, re- that needed to be uh, cru- I mean, uh, executed for our sin because of our rebellion against God, and he gave us his righteousness. his Our sin, and he gave us and clothed us with righteousness. All tr- who trust in him will be delivered or will be rescued from our sins. So there's a lot of encouragement just right here in this phrase for us. He paid our sins willingly, which means he knows every single one of us here. He knows every single heart on this planet. And he still willingly went to the cross in order to pay for sin. It didn't keep him from paying the price for our sins. Look, if you look at our, if we, if I look at my own heart and the way that I still sin against God, I would say, I don't deserve this grace and mercy I would kind of, I would self select out of the the need for, or the, that I would deserve God's grace. All of, probably all of us would. We'd say something like, How can he do that for me? I know what's going on. And yet, the fact that he gave himself shows that he willingly gave himself for you, for me. He paid the price for our sins. Like he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to serve us he came as a servant to demonstrate the love of the Father by serving us and becoming our substitute. But if you notice here in these verses, Paul goes on. He says, he gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, you might not have expected that phrase. You might think that he came, gave us for our sins to deliver us from death. Paul says, from the present evil age. So, what's he mean by that? You know, 1 John 5 19, John writes, We know that we're from God, we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, that the evil one, Satan, has some measure of power over this world. At the end of Galatians 6 14, uh, at the very end, Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, I used to be a part of the world... Now Christ has paid for me. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been united with him in his death so that his death applies to, my, to me. So my sin is paid for. And then when I rose from the dead, when he rose from the dead, I rose with him. And so I wish the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so in that way, the world no longer has dominion over me. We can say we have been set free. And so when Paul's talking about this realm of the world, he's talking about the realm where the power of the devil is still at work right now. Jesus said he chose us out of the world. So how did he make us out of the world and in the world, but not of the world? He united us by faith with his son, that his death again became our death. His life is our life. And so We have died with Christ. The power of sin has been defeated. The presence of sin still remains, but its power has been taken away. Some people say that it's the already, but not yet. We're living with this truth already we've been delivered. And yet we don't fully, we not yet, we don't fully see all the glory face to face that we will see one day. We still live in a sinful world marked by evil. The evil one seeks to destroy and kill and deal in the currency of pain. And so these convulsions, as David Brooks said, that happen in our communities like racism and anger and hate and murder, they're all evidences that we're very much a part of this evil world. And so even in just reminding us this, what Paul is doing is he's starting to make the case to say, look, how will you escape this evil world? How will this evil world be ultimately made right? And what he's pointing us to is it's at the cross. It's at the cross of Christ that all things ultimately are reconciled to him. So as believers, we know that there is something we've already tasted. And we're waiting for it in the future. So we're taking deep breaths of heaven and we're living in this world filled with brokenness. So this one phrase, "Jesus gave himself for us to deliver us from our sins and deliver us from the present evil age," it's key to the book of Galatians, because as Paul's about to point out, anybody who trusts in anything else for deliverance, ultimately, they're under a curse, as he will say. There's no rescue apart from Jesus." And so it's just maybe a simple question is, Do you know this sweet deliverance? Have you been rescued? From your sins? Have you turned to the only place where salvation is available? Do you have a substitute, one who was able and willing to pay for your sins? Have you turned to Jesus? So that's where Paul starts. He starts with the cross. We could say it this way we could say he starts with the beauty of the cross, just beginning in small measure to remind us of this truth. Next, thing I want us to look at here this morning the undistorted gospel. Now, in light of what we just saw about sweet deliverance that Jesus brings through death and resurrection, put yourself in Paul's shoes here for a second. You know, Paul and Barnabas, they go and they have this missionary journey. They have a lot of hardship. They're persecuted throughout. So they are going through great hardship. They're going from city to city in different areas, one of which is Galatia, and they're going from the city to city, and they're seeing amazing things. Even though they're going through hardship, they're seeing people turn to Jesus. They're seeing their eyes opened. They're seeing wonderful things happen. And then he starts to get wind, maybe a year or two later, he starts to get wind, you know, they're actually, you know, the people in Lystra or Derby, they're they're actually turning to another gospel. They're, they're being seduced by these false teachers. And so Paul takes it on himself to write a letter. And again, he starts with this astonishment. I'm, I'm astonished that you would so quickly desert this good news of the cross, the Jesus, the one who gave himself for you, that you're deserting and you're turning to a different gospel. He, he, you know, he's kind of, I'm floored. I, I'm blown away. I can't believe you would do that. I can't believe you'd turn to a different gospel, but if you look at verse seven, he he quickly clarifies. He says, look, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul's what he's saying is he's saying to be clear, he's not saying there actually is another gospel. There isn't good news, another good news. There aren't multiple ways to God. You pick whichever one works best for you. And as long as you believe fully, you'll be okay. That's decidedly what he's not teaching. And it's decidedly what, not, what scripture doesn't teach. There is one way to salvation. And so he's saying, but there are some who trouble you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ by kind of showing or making it that there is another way. And let me just remind you, there is no other way, he's saying. Look, they're, they're throwing, they're, they see a drowning man and they're throwing the bricks of the law to try to help them to surface. They're distorting the gospel by adding to it rather than by throwing the life vest of grace to these drowning people. You know, they're walking into the Louvre and, and with a paintbrush and they're trying to touch up the Mona Lisa. They're, as we see as we go through Galatians, they're distorting at every turn this simple gospel by essentially saying, well, yes, it is Jesus alone. He died for our sins. But, of course, God gave us the law for a reason. We're all Jewish here, or some of us are Jewish, and so we need to, we can't just turn away. God wouldn't give us all of these laws for all of this time only to have us no longer obeying them, right? These aren't all bad. Essentially what they're doing is they're saying, it's Jesus Plus, this other thing. It's Jesus plus kind of these old ritualistic rules and laws. Look what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we've preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received... Let him be accursed. So, look, notice Paul starts with a really extreme example. He says, look, even if an angel from heaven, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, it's extreme because, you know, look, if an angel showed up right now, based on the testimony of scripture, we would all have the same response we would all hit the deck, and we would be trembling with fear. That's how every person responds to seeing these angels. Or actually, I'm trying to think. Is it every person or most people? That's kind of their response, and they see an angel in Scripture. And my guess is that if an angel started speaking, we'd be really tempted to believe what he's saying because who's seen an angel? Who's had this amazing kind of, uh, kind of revelation given to us with something we see physically? And so Paul's saying, look, even if that happens, you have to turn away. Even if we would preach a different gospel, this message isn't by by man's invention. It's not by angel's invention. This is of God. Anyone who preaches a different gospel, even an angel, is accursed. And if you notice there, did you notice he repeated that twice? And just to be sure you understand what I'm saying, they are accursed Now, to be accursed in the Old Testament was to be devoted to destruction, just like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a a word that's reserved for the enemies of God, working contrary to the purposes of God, and so they are cursed. Which is what makes what Paul writes so amazing later. You know, turn over to Galatians 3.13. Paul's just written in Galatians 3.12: all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That's a very plain statement. So, how should we relate to the law? Paul says, all who rely for salvation on the works of the law are under a curse. And why is that? Why are they under a curse? Because they can't perfectly keep the law. You can never fully do it, and so you are cursed by it. You are sunk by it. It's driving you to your need. Look at Galatians 3.13. So, if we are relying on the law... We're under a curse, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so if we're under the curse of trying to obey perfectly, what we recognize is we have no hope but we have a savior who came and who willingly bore the curse of sin. Even becoming a curse, even being hung as a dead man, which would be unclean, he became for us. He fully kept the law. He took on himself the penalties that we couldn't pay. So why does Paul say, let the person be a curse who preaches something else? Because these false teachers they're actually imprisoning others with hell itself. They're chaining people up with an anvil, kind of to use our, kind of they're throwing bricks to people who are drowning. They're, not, they're doing more than that. They're actually taking a chain and wrapping it around their neck and attaching the biggest anvil they can have and throwing them into 11,000 feet of water. And they're saying, work hard and you'll be okay. And Paul's saying, that's from the pit of hell. Jesus plus nothing. That kind of false teacher is cursed themselves. And so Paul is able to speak very forthrightly. And he can speak very forthrightly to us today. We live in complicated times. We live in confusing times. We live in convulsive times but praise God that he has given to us the simple truth of a savior who showed mercy and grace to those who didn't deserve it. I'm in desperate need. You're in desperate need. And we have a savior, savior who died for desperate needy people. He rose from the dead and he invites us to find eternal life in him. He invites us to continually drink at the fountain of this gospel and delight in this good news and to not turn to the right or to the left. We can believe and we can see our Savior through the book of Galatians. Let us serve as a field guide to the gospel, helping us rejoice in all its truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you did for us what we would not have asked for, you provided for us what we could not have dreamed of. You've released us from the chains of sin and death, imprisoned by the law. You have taken us who are unable to free ourselves. You've taken us who are unable to pick the lock of salvation on our own. And you have given to us your son. And you have shown such mercy. You have shown such grace. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would open to us the book of Galatians, that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We pray that we would delight in our Savior more, that when we are tempted to, turn, to trust in our own moralism, when we're tempted to be despairing because we have not met all of the requirements we know uh, that we are under, Father, we, th- we pray that you would help us to look to our Savior who has met all of them for us who has saved us by grace. May we delight in this grace and this riches, we pray. Amen.